I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible and the last chapter of Genesis. Tonight we're beginning a series in the book of Exodus. It promises to be a, an extensive series, but we'll begin with Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 22. And that's found on page 44 in the Pew Bible. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, write down three things you remember about Joseph. Two, what did Joseph say to his brothers would happen in the future? Three, when God makes a promise, does it always happen right away? And then, does he always keep his promises? Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 22, this is the word of God. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. There ends God's word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these passages that take us to a place and a time so far away and so long ago and yet have so much significance for us even today as your people. And Lord, as we enter into this new series, we pray for your blessing that each time your word is read and each time your word is preached that our hearts would be touched and moved by your word to us. And so tonight, Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you would help the preacher and help all of us who would hear. Please send your spirit in a special way as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we don't usually associate caskets and coffins and graves with hope and promise, but that is definitely the case here with Joseph's coffin, Joseph's desire to be preserved for a greater day. There's certainly promise in it. Uh, tonight is our introduction to a series in Exodus, and it begins with Joseph. And it teaches us how Israel's folly landed them in the predicament called Egypt, the bondage of Egypt. Now, I will reintroduce Exodus, Lord willing, next time. Against a friend's wisdom and against the friend's counsel, who said only give five lines of introduction to Exodus, I decided to do a whole sermon of maybe preface instead of introduction and then more introduction next time. There's a lot we're going to wade into in the book of Exodus. But we need to remember Joseph and we're going to follow his casket. 
I'm going to state the obvious. His death is not where his story begins, but it's also not where his story ends. It is his story that explains to us how Israel got themselves into the miserable house of slavery in Egypt. And so the legacy of Joseph first. Joseph was a special kid, we might say, a special child. He was born to Jacob and Rachel while Jacob was still an indentured servant to Laban. You might recall the competition between Leah and Rachel. You might recall that Leah kept having babies and Rachel wasn't. There were two maidservants thrown in there as well who would give Jacob children also. And it turns out that Leah will have six boys and one girl. It turns out the maidservants between them will have four boys, and then Rachel ends up with two boys. The first one being Joseph, the second one being Benjamin, and she dies when she has Benjamin. But you take those sons all together, and you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was favored by Jacob. He loved Rachel so much. He was Rachel's son. She lo he loved him so much that uh, he showed it by giving him a spectacular colored coat, as you well know. He showed that he favored him greatly, but that was to the annoyance of his brothers. And he kept being annoyance to his brothers uh, because he has this fateful dream. And he dreams that his brothers will one day bow down to him. And you can imagine that that didn't go too well. It didn't put him in good standing with his brothers, so like any good older brothers would do, they plot to murder him. And so they plan this murderous plot spawned by their jealousy, and through a series of providential circumstances, Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, in this sophisticated world power called Egypt, this strange and mysterious land. Through another series of events, he becomes second only to Pharaoh, and he becomes in charge of all the storehouses, of all the food. He's got tremendous power. But he's not affected by his surroundings. Even though he's surrounded by pagan idolatry and unbelief, he never forgets who he is or who he's serving. The remarkable thing about Joseph, he remains faithful. We're familiar with him re remaining faithful in his morality, but he remains faithful in his devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his covenant God. Someone put it this way, whatever circumstances come into our lives, good or evil, we must stay true to the one who works all things for the good of those who love him. Well, lo and behold, there's a famine, and there's no other option but for Jacob and his family to go into Egypt. And so they make their way into Egypt, and they find themselves needing to go to this stranger named Joseph, who they don't recognize. But eventually, eventually, these men who left Joseph for dead see who he is. He reveals himself. And I want you to see what Joseph says to them. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 45. Genesis 45, beginning in verse 1. 
remember Joseph's power. Remember what Joseph could have done. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. And then back to our passage, our chapter, chapter 50, his brothers aren't quite convinced. They've been blessed, they've been shown his mercy and his kindness, but here at the end of Joseph's life, they're still not so sure. Pick up in verse 15, chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What a tremendous act of kindness and grace on Joseph's part. You think back on Joseph's life and how crazy things had been for him, his crazy life, led him into many, many difficult situations, but he still trusted in God, and it's a bit anachronistic, but I couldn't help but think if it could have been his life verse, Joseph certainly could say, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, Joseph had negotiated a deal with Pharaoh so his family would be safe and well-fed to preserve that remnant of God's people. But now his long and amazing life was coming to an end. And he says to his brothers that they're not to leave his body there in Egypt. Do not leave my body here in this God-forsaken land, so to speak. He wants to be where 
his people will be and where his God will be with them. Even though it's symbolic, he wants his body to be there. He wants to be in the promised land with God's people. Many of us can relate to that. We probably want to be buried somewhere where there's some association with our people, our heritage. Well, here in a very profound sense, Joseph wants to be where God will establish and bless his people. His life's coming to an end. And he asks to be embalmed in the Egyptian way. The simple word for embalming is spiced, and so they used spices to preserve and wrap his body, according, again, to the Egyptian ways, which, by the way, makes it easy for transport, because he has no intention of having his body remain, remain in Egypt. But before he goes, he wants the people of God to know that God keeps his promises, Count on God's word. Mark God's words. You will come out of Egypt. I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He's giving them absolute assurance. He doesn't have any idea how long that's going to be, They don't have any idea how long it's going to be before they come out of Egypt. But he knows that it will happen. He knows that it will happen. The writer of Hebrews says that this was an act of faith. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I want to take a little bit of a detour, but it's probably one of the most important detours we can make. Before we come back to earth and back to Israel, so to speak, I want to point out that Joseph is a Christ figure. And that has to do not only with Joseph as a Christ figure, but in the bigger picture of Exodus. I don't want to stretch it too much So maybe I'll just state the obvious about how Joseph is a type of Christ. And the thing about types of Christ that we see in the Old Testament is that they give us a shadowy image of Christ to come. And they're not exacting, and there's always some sharp contrast. And so here we go. We'll move through some of the things and make some of the connections. First of all, there's none like There's always going to be a dramatic contrast. But but let's kind of work through this. There's no child like Christ, the incarnate Son of God. But as a man, as he's on earth, he has God's, the Father's, full favor. And he quite literally ends up as an infant in Egypt because his parents have to take him there to protect him from Herod. So out of Egypt, I called my son. Picture Israel. As Jesus grows, he is the son in whom the father is well pleased. And he's the one who has come to fallen mankind, who is in bondage, in darkness, in, you might say, the land of slavery. And he comes to his own. But his own don't receive him. 
In fact, it's his own people who, who develop a murderous plot spawned, we know this from Pilate, spawned by their envy and jealousy. Does that sound familiar to you? And their plot, from a worldly perspective, is successful. And yet we know that ultimately it's God's plan. This was God's plan all along, similar to what Joseph said. This wasn't you who brought me into Egypt, but it was God's plan who let the hands of evil men crucify the Son of God. They were successful in their murder plot, but the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Jesus didn't stay in a coffin or a casket or even a tomb for 400 years. Death could not hold him, and so on the third day, he rose up from the dead. He rises and he's witnessed by many. He ascends into heaven, that which is, is, is the ultimate promised land. Promised land in this earth only faintly resembles anything like the glories of heaven. But he did all this in order to save and preserve his people, to save them from darkness, to deliver them from bondage, from slavery, from a kind of slavery and bondage that's more gripping than Egypt could ever have been. To deliver us from the hand of darkness, sin, the devil, and death. One day all will look upon him who was pierced. And even those who rejected him, even those who pierced him, will be in awe. And yet, through his being rejected, crucified, and having the victory, he's made Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And someday, all will bow down to him. All of spiritual Israel, which is the church, will bow down in worship. But all who rejected him, all of Egypt, which represents darkness, will fall down in terror. But you can see when you trace the life of Joseph, and as we'll see, follow his coffin, that it's just a small representation of the glorious work of what Jesus Christ will do. But let's go back to Egypt for a little while. You see, it goes well for a while after Joseph dies, but then things turn bad when there's a pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph, and things start to go very poorly. They find themselves as slaves in this awful place. What kind of place is this? This very sophisticated, very civilized place, highly civilized, highly technological in some amazing ways, and yet there's a man who's their pharaoh who thinks he's God. And they're living among people who worship all kinds of, of miniature gods in the form of idols. They even worship a dung beetle. That's the mentality of these highly sophisticated yet godless people. And, and God's people are living among them, God's covenant people in this pagan culture. They have their own problems, that's for sure. But 
but they still prosper and multiply in this context. They, the godly among them have to be vexed by their surroundings. And yet they're still to remain faithful to their God, even in that setting. But as we begin to enter into Exodus, we need to look beyond. So let's go back for the last few moments to Joseph's bones. His bones, for the time being, remaining in the house of bondage, where the people of God are in bondage to sin. But as God has said, and as Joseph has passed on, what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob passed on to him, that God will deliver them, even though they're sometimes ungrateful, stubborn, and sinful people. And as we get into Exodus, we'll see all these things unfold. We'll get to know the deliverer that God sends very well. We'll get to know Moses well. And not to be a spoiler, but the people will actually be delivered from Egypt in a very dramatic way. They'll be taken out of the house of bondage and taken into the promised land. But back to Joseph's bones. Turn with me to Joshua. As you know, sadly, Moses doesn't make it into the promised land. He can only see it from a distance. But it's Joshua. Joshua, Yeshua, who in Greek would be Jesus, another type of Christ, leads them into the promised land. But here at the end of Joshua, Joshua 24, pick up in verse 29, there's great significance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sirach, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem in the place of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. There is that wonderful symbol of the Christ figure going into the promised land that we already saw in connection with Jesus. And so the big picture of Joseph's story sets the scene for both the delivery into Egypt and the delivery out of Egypt, out of bondage, and into the promised land. And through all of it, we see God's sovereignty, his power, and wisdom on display. We see here a grand type of greater deliverance that's in Christ. Jesus' fulfillment shows us the Son of God's willingness to enter into our place of bondage into our place of slavery in order to deliver us from it. And his death is atoning. His resurrection releases us from sin and Satan and death itself. And then in his ascension, he blazes the path for us to enter into something far greater than the promised land, but the glorious heaven of our God. 
There's so much hope here bound up in a tomb, in a grave, in a casket, whatever you want to call it, in a coffin. And the amazing thing is that hope is our hope. After all, I have stood next to far too many caskets, too many coffins, with my hand near the head. Mostly of saints, not all saints, so it doesn't apply to all, but I've stood next to too many with my hand near the head of saints in caskets, committing their bodies to the ground. Their souls have gone to be with the Lord already. But the amazing thing to me is that with full confidence, I can say that they've entered something far greater than any earthly promised land. They've entered the presence of God. And that one day, that very same body will be raised, raised to honor in Christ Jesus, to be with him forever and ever in the new heavens and in the new earth. A place more spectacular even than Eden could have ever been. We're reminded of that in Joseph. It's confirmed for us in Jesus. And it's a promise for all saints. After all, the coffin is never really the end, is it? Let's pray. Lord, you are merciful to your people. And Lord, we see that out of bondage, sorrow, and night, you deliver your people from that which we could never set us ourselves free from, sin, the grips of the evil one, and that great enemy, death. But Lord, your promises are true, and they always come true, because you are God, and you are sovereign. And nothing comes to pass except for by your good and perfect will. And your good and perfect will dictates that your people will be, have been, delivered. Lord, we thank you so much for that. And that even as we think of coffins, caskets, graves, cemeteries, which in some ways make us so sorrowful, so mournful, we recognize that even there, because of you, there's true hope and true promise. And in you, hope is sure. And your promises always come to fruition. We praise you and thank you. We come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, who was himself dead, but who now lives.